Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Well, okay, so recently I learned there's like a whole team, hello, Laura, yes. out there on the internet that yes. I have to suddenly feel intimidated by. I know. I, yeah, I, I was no going to say, <laughs> hello, Laura, but honestly, I forgot because I was drinking my wine. Mm. Yeah. Um, but just watch out because it might happen next time. Yes, apparently think <laughs> people think it's charming when I make dad jokes. No, they don't. They do not think that. You don't think it's charming. Uh, right. Um, anyway, so today is August 21st. Um, we've got a pretty fun, I think, episode for you today. Um, but uh, first of all, Laura, did you go and stare at the sun today? I No, because it was completely cloud covered. Mm. There was no sun. There was no sun. And it was like, it was going to be perfect. I planned it right before. I was doing like yoga right before and I finished and I was sweaty and gross, but feeling mm -hmm. like one with the world and my body. And, you know, I was ready to, you know, like worship raw. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were clouds. And so actually it was um, that uh, the, I think the peak, Mm -hmm. peak sun thing Mm -hmm. happened at 106 p.m. Mm -hmm. Uh, by 2.30, it was pouring and about five times as dark as it was yeah. when the eclipse was happening, which was all in all kind of a bummer. You know, I went out there around the time it was supposed to be really good, and it was cloudy, but, like, I saw a little, you know. Um, I was one of the people just staring up at the sun um, with all my neighbors. We were all outside. There's, like, a couple little restaurants near my apartment. You know, so- it's really important that your <laughs> eyes stay, like, yeah. doing their job. Well, so no, 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 it's not because I'm a podcaster (laughs) and and all of my job is done uh, with the mouth and the ears. And so so actually I don't need to read anything anymore. um, Ever again. Because this is my life now. Um, Okay. But anyway, now that I'm blind, I feel like we can probably start the show. Um, Before we do that, how about a basic rundown? Yes. So our query episode is going live um, tomorrow, or I guess when you're listening to this, because last week I was in New York's. Yeah. Sorry and oops. Yeah. Um, but so that one's coming to you a couple days late, which means that our writing by reading episode, which is Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, will be going live the same week. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is this Thursday, August 24th. Mm-hmm. Our first pages episode will go live August 31st. Also a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Also a Thursday. Um, send us your first pages, your queries, your you know comments, etc. Especially if you're team hashtag Hello Laura. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail so I want a different. I want a different hashtag, like hashtag Blind Boys, like, <laughs> <laughs> for you know my side of things at this point. Um, but uh, anyway, so thing number one. You were in New York City. I was in New week. York City. I didn't see a single rat or a single cockroach. Man, you weren't trying that hard, huh? Well, I took the subway late at yeah. night. I walked yeah. in places where there weren't that many cars. Like I did mm-hmm. all of the things that I that a person typically needs to do to see rats the size of cats. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see one. I think New York was trying to trick me. Yeah, and like come here it was more, more often. Glamorous, yeah. Um, oof, man. Um, but how was it? It was good. You went to a conference, right? Yep. It was um, overall, Eric, New York was cheesy. Mm-hmm. I ate 
a lot of cheese. Yeah. Like it was literally cheesy. Why are you, you, you can't leave the Midwest and then eat cheese elsewhere. Like what are you doing? Like that's what we do when we go to Wisconsin. Well, first of all, I was having happy hour with somebody and it was at a place where they had – they made their cheese in-house. Uh-huh. And they had this really good like happy hour um, – this really good happy hour mac and cheese. And so we got two of them and then also a cheese plate. In-house cheese, like in-house made macaroni and cheese for happy hours, like the most New York thing I could think of. Like it is. Really, like, really, okay, but was it actually that good? Because it was good. <laughs> it wasn't the best mac yeah. and cheese that I've ever yeah. had. Yeah. So I had that. And then the next day, I just ordered a grilled cheese for lunch because I am an adult human being. Um, but then a few hours later, I went to, and this is also the most New York place ever, um, Raclette mm-hmm. in, um, on, on the somewhere in oh, Manhattan. Wow. Someone's not from New York City, doesn't know the street <laughs> names. Wow. Um, Outsider. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Okay, Colorado Midwest boy. much? <laughs> um. So we went to Raclette, <laughs> yeah. and it was – so if you're not familiar with this particular dish, and I knew about this even in Minnesota because uh-huh. I think my, like, Facebook algorithms I are... think it's very important that this segment be entirely a food breakdown. Of by course. By the way, and yeah, this is, this is what the people come to this show yes. for. Yeah. Good. Um, so I'll get to the books in a minute. Yeah, no, this is more important. Um, so this place, it's it's – it's a kind of Swiss and French eatery type thing mm-hmm. that's that's focused around cheese. So mm-hmm. there is a – either it's a dish or a type of cheese. I'm not entirely certain. I was kind of drunk on cheese yeah. the entire time I was there. But yeah. basically it is a um, dish of like roasted vegetables or bread or potatoes and basically just like these beautiful roasted things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they put this gigantic wheel of cheese, which is not Swiss cheese, but it's a <laughs> cheese from Switzerland – they put the cheese under like a broiler uh-huh. and then they bring it out to you. And it's like it's like a small woman carrying this gigantic mm-hmm. half wheel of cheese mm-hmm. and it's all melty on top. And then she takes a knife and she scrapes the melted part off onto your food and then you eat it. And it was – let me tell you, Eric. It was pornographic. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well – um, it's tough to know how to how to transition from pornographic cheese. Well, um, I did it. I did it with you know some agent friend and, and some editors <laughs> that I was meeting. Perfect. So I was working so while my, I was eating all of this cheese. So my question to you then, um, and it's one that I think comes up a lot of the time when people who work in the industry outside of New York City go for a trip there. Yes. Um, which is the idea of. Do you feel like you're an outsider to the industry when you visit? Like, because one thing that happens a lot is New York is so much a geographic focal point of all of the book world, right? Um, and there's this sense, I think, sometimes that we're all sort of orbiting around. Um, that's a transition from my eclipse talk <laughs> earlier. Um, that's a little thing called professional radio for you. Um, but basically. Do you feel like when you go and visit and you see all these people kind of clustered in one, you know, in one place in Manhattan, um, do you feel – do you come away with the sense that you're somehow missing out, that you're somehow, you know, not where you should be? Because it's a question – I mean I've, you know, thought about it a lot as someone who used to work there and now works out here in beautiful Minnesota. But I'm interested in what your take is as someone who has always been here and is now going there. So – I don't really have a ton to compare it to since I've never lived in New York City. But from kind of the impression that I get is I kind of when I go to New York City and I have meetings and we can talk about what those meetings actually are in a minute. 
Um, but I kind of feel like a superstar. <laughs> like, okay, so here's why. Why? How in the world is that true? So I am an agent uh-huh. that has books that potentially people want to buy, right? Yeah. Editors want to buy. Right. And when I come into the city, they pretty much only get one opportunity to kind of establish a relationship with me so that I can sell them good books and hopefully have them their next bestseller. Yeah. Um, and so people make time for me. Like, yeah. it, from what I understand, New York City is, like, even more so than any other city. It's, like, the place where you're, like, oh, yeah, let's have drinks really soon, and then you're just perennially canceling. Right. That happened, like, that was, like, the driving principle of my entire life. Right. So you've got plans (laughs) for six months with somebody every two weeks, and it never happens. Well, when I go to New York City, people meet with me. Right, because you're a novelty. And because I'm a novelty. Because you're not around, yeah. Yes, and I can, like, talk right. to them about um, yeah. spending, you know, a dollar square foot on real estate, and then they get really excited about it. It is fun to troll those people about oh, real estate. Price. I take pictures of my apartment <laughs> before I go just so I can, like, show them. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, I don't feel like I'm an outsider because I feel like people are are kind of looking at my location and experience as something that – is something that they don't really get very often. Yeah. Like I think there's this this idea that because I'm in the Midwest, I have more access to Midwest writers who um, win lots of awards. Midwest um, has a lot of good writers. Midwest has a really a lot of really good writers, and it's a very like literary city. The Twin Cities, which is where we're recording from, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're we're the best place to be in publishing right after New York City. I would say so, yeah. And there, now we're going to get – I hope we can pick a fight with someone from, like, the Bay Area or, like, Boston or something. They can they can come try us. They um, can. But they, they won't win. Um, but so, I mean, one thing that I've always found, you know, with, like, the New York visit – and it's like this fabled thing for anyone who works in publishing that um, isn't there um, – is that I haven't really found – that much of a – like I haven't had this burning desire to go back yet. Like I haven't been back since I moved a few years ago. And it's because um, communication is just like so easy now that I feel like a lot of the time, you know, editors I talk to, they don't even like realize that I'm like not in the city. I get emails and, all the time yeah. from somebody being like, hey, I just saw this book yeah. that you sold. Let's right. have coffee right. next week. Right. And I'm exactly. like, come to Minnesota. Yeah, no, I, I get a lot of that too. And it's like – to me, that's a really good sign um, that sort of the true like geography ties of this industry are hopefully breaking down a little. Yeah. Um, because so many of the actual, um, you know, so many of the actual writers and people like that are elsewhere, and so I think it's good that um, you know, like an agency, you know, like the one we work for, can exist away from the city and still thrive, and um, you know, all these other things, and so. But you're right. It almost lends itself to an advantage because when you do show up and you do kind of assert yourself in person, um, there's that sense that, well, man, Laura's only here for a few days. We better make sure that we can get her in. Exactly. Um, And I scheduled a lot of meetings with individual people and they said, "Okay, let me rope in my colleagues so you can get two for the price of one and that sort of thing. Um, And and that was a really interesting experience. So this is the first time I've ever been – to New York for work where I haven't had like a just a ton of books to sell. Yeah. So let's let's let me back up for a second and just talk about what like the editor agent meeting is and what it's for. Sure. Um so the first the first thing to to kind of understand about all of this is that this is an industry of individuals, 
Right. I think that is so key. Yeah. And and so many people forget this. And, you know, I was at a conference right after I did all of these meetings and and, and writers, writers who have been in this industry for a really long time yeah. were saying, okay, but so what do you do when you meet with these right. editors? Right. Um, and so here's here's what it is. Writers are really, really familiar with having to appeal to an individual agent's taste. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing for an agent to appeal to an individual editor's taste. Yeah. So like an imprint might have kind of an overall identity, Yeah. right? They might have an overall kind of focus on commercial versus literary voice. They might yeah. have a focus on hooks. They might have a focus on, you know, some sort of book. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're not selling to the imprint. You're not selling to the publisher. What you're doing is you, an individual agent, are selling to an individual editor. Right. And it's, I think in a lot of ways, um, it's, it is sort of similar to authors trying to find agents, right? Because you get um, agents who are able to just like rehearse the, you know, par- the, like the wish lists of yeah. all the agents they're trying to pitch, right? Like they know exactly what um, everybody wants and they've kind of made it their business to know exactly what, you know, all the agents they're interested in want. And I feel like that's kind of the same for us as well. Exactly. Um, which is, you know, editors have, I mean, and they're less publicly shared because why would they be, right? Like they're not interfacing with the public. (laughs) They're interfacing with us. And so – but we get the same sort of thing. It's like you get kind of a list in a database of what specifically um, an individual wants. And oftentimes I think that it has, like you're saying, less to do with imprint or house than it does just with appealing to a person. And I think um, to me that's really interesting because – at the end of the day, this whole long like process that I think writers get so hung up on really just is just a matter of like three people connecting. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like being this big like cosmic achievement. It's about <laughs> a one individual writer appealing to one individual, you know, agent who happens to like that thing regardless of any of their other stated tastes and then that person taking it and making it appeal to just one other person, you know, and I think that Thinking about it like that can um, really – it can really simplify the way – it makes it seem smaller to me and I think it's better that way. Yeah. Well, the idea of kind of just like, well, my my book has to be loved by everyone. Right. That's actually not true until it gets to like the trying to sell it to readers. At yeah. this point, you know, like – Okay, so I go into an editor with – or I go into a meeting with an editor. It's usually about 30 minutes to an hour depending on if we're having snacks. (laughs) We often have snacks. Um, I'm a really good excuse for people to also get out of the office for some coffee and use those company credit cards, which can't be understated. That's also why I'm very popular when I go to New York City. Um, I'm not saying like I, Laura Zatz, am popular, just like an agent not from New York City is popular. folks. I'm very popular. Um, so I go in and, you know, honestly, the, the the most valuable thing for me is to ask an editor, okay, so tell me about your list. Like what book are you working on right now that you're really, really excited about? Yeah. And if you're really lucky, they'll have like an arc or, you know, like a finished copy that they can give you yeah. and show you and then you can read later. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you say, okay, well, you're working on this. What – are, you know, are you looking for anything specific in the future? And, you know, and that can be something, you know, like I want a female, female friendship book that takes place on a spaceship yeah. all the way to, you know, like I really, really want a book that makes me cry. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Um, and then. Your point there is that 
um, and this has been my experience as well, is that you can get requests and like desires from editors that are both very, very specific and literal and things that are much more based on just like broad amorphous reader experience. Yeah, and it becomes a matter of like getting to know an individual and getting to know an individual's taste. You know, you talk about the favorite book that they've read this year. You know, you talk about um, kind of your list if they've read something on it, you know, you and not necessarily in in the guise of selling something like, oh, you said you like this. I have this, although that does happen. But a lot of it is just kind of giving each other a sense of – who you are as readers and as people who work in the publishing industry. Yeah. So, you know, like if you get a book from Laura Zatz, it's going to be a very, you know, it could be across genres. It could, you know, be across all these things. But there are a certain select number of things that link all of my books together with my list. And it's important for people to know that. Um, And it really does streamline the process. You know, like there are some editors that – it's been very clear that we have a lot of the same taste. And so they say, you know what? Like, don't even, like, worry about pitching it to me. Just, like, send me the book that you – like, just send me the book, you know? Yeah. And it kind of cuts cuts a little bit of that, yeah. like, right. will they, won't they, like, right. please love me kind of thing out of it. Yeah. Um, so really what – when I go to New York City, it's I'm going to these huge buildings with the beautiful open floor plans and I'm, you know, I'm walking in and I'm getting that little temporary name badge with Simon and Schuster. But all I'm doing is just ending up in a conference room with a person. With one person yeah. Yeah. trying to figure out what they love. Right. Um yep. so that's, you know, it's You should go to more small presses, by the way. Yeah. Because you will get way less name tags and lobbies and a lot more <laughs> like <laughs> um Small little waiting rooms and desperate attempts to get out of the office just for like a second of breathing. Um. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I did for the first half <laughs> yeah. of my my time in New York City. Yeah. Um, but I was there for the Writers Digest conference, right? Which is a very kind of different vibe from that because everybody's trying to impress everyone there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you went to this conference. I sure did. And I did not go to this conference, but. Um, people were talking about this conference online and something I think jumped out at both of us um, that we saw that kind of came from one of the panel discussions. From what I understand, you were not a part of this. I don't think you were seeing it. Um, no, obviously, I wasn't in the session. It was a it was like an agent Q&A session at yeah, Writer's Digest. Right. Um, and so – but something happened during this discussion that got tweeted out that I thought was – at least worth interrogating a little bit because it kind of raised my eyebrow and I know it raised yours as well, Um, which is someone was live tweeting the event, you know, and they were kind of dishing out little bits of advice. And so this is is a tweet um, that came as sort of a quote, uh, so to speak, from this panel discussion, right? It says, ask the agents panel, colon, be careful with your opinions on Twitter unless you're Roxanne Gay. And so my question to you, Laura, and this got me pretty riled up when I, <laughs> when I saw this, but I'll let, I'll let you have um, the first swing at it. Do you think that is good advice or do you think that is bad advice? And I'll read it again one more time. Be careful with your opinions on Twitter unless you're Roxanne Gay. And this is presumably directed at writers, right? Like this is a – like yes. I'm taking this context. And again, we weren't there. I didn't see this. I'm sure we're going to debate this sentence Purely at face right. value. Yeah, exactly. Value. So like maybe there's context we're missing. Maybe there's, you know, whoever said it was speaking in terms of something else. Maybe the tweet's misrepresentative, whatever. We're going to kind of take this as just a piece of advice that got put out into the world and kind of talk about it from there. 
Um, so what do you think? Is Do you think that writers need to, quote, be careful with their opinions on Twitter unless they are Roxanne Gay, which mathematically they aren't? <laughs> <laughs> Darn. Yeah, I know. Mathematically, there is a very small chance but that I are. am, in fact, Roxanne yeah, Gay. I know. Um, I, I saw that, and I had a couple of people come up to me after that and kind of, you know, when I was at a, I was at a happy hour with a bunch of authors after this panel happened, they asked me what I thought. And I, you know, I did like that, like hand flap where I was like, I don't just like, I vehemently (laughs) disagree with this. Like, that's wrong. Yeah. It's just wrong. Um, So, well, okay. So I would say that saying it's just wrong um, misses a little bit of what I think is necessary context, which is that there are plenty of reasons to be careful with your opinions on Twitter, right? Sure. Like maybe you are, you know, like maybe you've got your your employer watches your social media. Maybe, um, maybe I don't you're know. a YA author who hates Oreos, <laughs> which is an exactly. actual like yeah. Thing. Maybe the mob is coming for yeah. Um, but anyway, like the point is that all the necessary like real world qualifiers for being careful on social media. But within this specific context, what I'm taking this to mean is, as a writer. You should be careful with discussing your opinions on things um, because it would somehow impede your writing career, right? Yeah. Like it would somehow impede your ability to get a book deal or impress the right you know, person or you know, not make the right friends. And so I, the, the thing with me, the first thing I you know, um, had an issue with here, and I too largely think that this point is a little bit off base at face value, um, is for who? Like, who are you being careful in front of? Because what this is suggesting is that not being careful has the possibility of rankling the wrong people, right? And that rankling would somehow get in the way of you um, having the book writing career that you would want. So I think I think the important context qualifier here is be careful with your opinions unless you're Roxanne Gay. And we don't need to talk specifically about Roxanne Gay because she's just an example in this. But what Roxanne Gay kind of stands for, I think, in the context of of this statement yeah. is a successful writer who has made it and whose thoughts are paid attention to. Um, and yeah. so I think this is very much advice for um, non-established up and coming writers, writers who, up and coming writers who probably don't have the deal yet. Right. And so they're not in front of readers. They're not in front of, you know, kind of the general public. Yeah. So, which means that this can only be referring to one group of people that this person says that you can't, you should you be careful offend about them. offending, and that is agents. <laughs> that's us, folks. And, that, and that's where I get really crabby about this sentence. Um, because, so really, what this is saying is that if you don't, um, you know, you should be careful with your opinions on Twitter. Um, or you might run the risk of offending, you know, a group of agents or an agent that will somehow prohibit you from getting the book deal of your dreams. And what's interesting to me about that is I think that it's fair to say that most um, book – members of like book Twitter, like whether it's a publishing house, whether it's an agent. I mean obviously like prominent writers, this person acknowledges, I mean are often doing it. You know, anyone in this field, people are tweeting about politics all the time. You know, this is not an a this is not a field full of people who are scared to share their opinion. We I mean, have our politics in our right. Twitter bios. Exactly. Yeah. Like I mean a lot a lot of people do. I do not. But um it's 
This is not as though agents are particularly shy about expressing opinions or retweeting things that they find to be funny, you know, whether they're political or not. And so the idea that somehow um, there's like a certain politeness in a writer having to be careful about that I think is really strange because agents aren't. And so to me what this gets at is, um, you know, agents and editors in most of the book world, I think, and, you know, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that a lot of the more prominent accounts, whether it's your favorite, you know, active agent on Twitter, whether it's a book publisher, whether whoever it is, there's a very, like, homogenous set of political beliefs that these people have. Like, there's a very, very clear-cut, distinct set of things that all these people, you know, kind of believe and think and kind of have as this, like, set of, quote-unquote, acceptable views on everything. And if you, and what this, to me, what this is saying is that if somehow you don't fall within that, um, you run the risk of alienating yourself as a writer, and I find that I find that to be pretty problematic. Um, one because it suggests that <laughs> it suggests that um, you know the book world is some sort of moral political authority, and to me, um, as we've talked about many times on this show, is that they very clearly aren't. Like I have no reason, and neither do any of you listening to this show. You have no reason to believe that. Anyone in the book world, you know, whether it's a press, whether it's an agent, has beliefs that are more thought out or, like, better or more, like, good than yours. And and like, then publishing will show itself time and time again to not have beliefs that are particularly, you know, progressive or liberal or whatever it is um, you're treating as, you know, actually, you know, virtuous and good. And so I, it rankles me a little that... You know, this sort of – and I only bring it up. Like this tweet wouldn't really matter, you know, this idea that, um, you know, someone would say, oh, be careful with your opinions. It wouldn't matter in a vacuum. But you kind of see this sentiment all the time. You know, I see um, – you know, I see tweets from book people all the time that sort of suggest that certain people are kind of falling outside their accepted standard of perceived decency or that um, – you know, they see a certain, you know, cultural trend or something happening as, um, you know, outside the, you know, the very, very small or, or very, very, not maybe not small, but very, very defined Overton window, you know, that occurs in publishing. And I don't know. Like, to me, does it rankle you at all? I mean, it's, it does. It, I think it rankles me for different and but also related reasons sure. that it rankles you. Sure. Um you know, from a very, very base level, like, you know, kind of just ignoring the fact that there are literal Nazis that are visible <laughs> in our country yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm just really, really rankled by the fact that a publishing professional whose livelihood is literally based on people sharing their thoughts. Right. Um, is wanting to control when those thoughts are shared. Um, yeah. Because because I think I think maybe that was true, you know, 20 years ago, but the internet is a thing, you know, and the internet is, you know, the single biggest force of change within the publishing industry um about how, you know, publishers work. And 
I feel like the internet has forced, um, not forced, but, you know, has brought agents and editors a lot more to the forefront of public thought. You know, like we joke on oh, this show. Oh, it hasn't forced because all these people are <laughs> fucking loving the idea that they believe themselves now to be these like public thought leaders. I know. And yeah. I am one of them. Like we've joked on this show before about how I want nothing more in this world than to get that blue check mark. And so that <laughs> – now I'm going to get mad. So, um, so. Okay. But so here's here's the reason why yeah. that's awful of me to do. Yeah. It's because I am not contributing any sort of good discourse – to the world. What I am doing is I am literally somebody who is kind of behind the scenes that's helping other people have better thoughts than me. I just think it's really strange that agents in the modern age have started to occupy this like space as like, you know, public thought leaders or like not that they actually are, but they sort of think of themselves in that way. I think of myself as right. that, which no, exactly. I also know is ridiculous. <laughs> well, it is ridiculous. And it's but it's a totally widespread thing. I mean, you see um, you know, every – I don't know. Like to me, there's a very like smug strand that runs through like agent Twitter. And I find it really bothers me because I think that I could look at several, um, you know, very prominent – and I'm not going to like name anybody. Um, but like just like book accounts that I think express things all the time that I think are patently ridiculous as someone who identifies as like a progressive. You know, like someone who – um, I don't know. There's just plenty of stuff that happens that I think really surrenders any sort of objective moral political authority on the part of the um, you know, gatekeeper side of publishing. And to me, the idea that we would be going to writers' conferences and like expressing, um, well, you know, you got to make sure that you're careful with your opinion so that you don't offend me, like it's, it's foolish. And I think that it's not only foolish, but it's directly antithetical to what the agent's role is supposed to be and what it once was before we had all this like personal branding and the internet, which was to just like take someone else who was doing the thinking and the writing and help them, you know, and if you thought their ideas were good, you help them, you know, express themselves. But like the idea that somehow writers should be worried about expressing things that offend agents I I think that's pretty I think that's pretty silly. Especially because as we talked about earlier in this episode, it's 100% about you finding one other person. Exactly. Like this is <laughs> right, exactly. That's a great point. Like I this mean, this our whole job is predicated on the idea that I as an individual am connecting with you as an individual. Yeah. Like we we aren't just groups. We aren't just like this horde of publishing professionals that have all of the same thoughts and feelings, et cetera. Yeah, but they would love there's – there's a big group that would love for you to think so. Yeah. And it's the same group that is telling people to um, to pipe down, to quit complaining, um, to do things that I think you and I have discussed many times, you know, hurt people of color as they try to break into this industry, you know, hurt any sort of opening up of opportunity for anything other than like the white liberal who is allowed to, you know, who has the means of to like work a low-paying job in Manhattan, you know. Like, it just gets back to the same ideas we've ever talked about, which is that, like, these these are not the people that should be controlling the gates. And this feels like one more thing that, um, I don't know, it just, it, it bothers me because it it's it feels detrimental to the entire objective of the exercise, which is to help people um, with probably thoughts that are different than ours um, in a way that we view as useful. Obviously, I'm not saying, you know, give... The Nazis, Nazis, the book deals. deals. That's not at all what I'm saying. But like there are plenty of people who have different beliefs than liberals who have very, very good thoughts about things. And those people 
should not be like afraid to express themselves on platforms for fear of ruining their chances of getting a book. I don't know. I I am worried and I think I think what you mentioned about this system which is predominantly, you know, like most people who are agents are white. Yeah. You know, most people are, you know, who are agents are from upper middle class right. or or, you know, upper upper class yeah. backgrounds. Right. And I th- I think you landed on something really interesting there. Um, that this very much saying like you can only share your opinions if they are the same as mine or you can only share them in certain areas. Like honestly, it's it's a it's a silencing tactic. It's to get people to not criticize me an individual, me, my, you know, the, my cohorts, mm-hmm. cohorts who do what we mm-hmm. do, um, you know, offend, no, not to criticize, you know, the, the agency that I work with or the houses that I work with or the establishment as a whole, which, you know, gives you your livelihood. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, this is a white upper class establishment. And I think that the, that the, the focus of agents trying to control what people are saying is giving that giving that false idea that they're the moral equivalency yeah. or you know they're the moral authority in publishing and the fact of the matter is is you know and as somebody who wants nothing more than that blue check mark um <laughs> The fact of the matter is, is that I am a cog in a gigantic capitalist industry that is never, ever, as we've talked about before on the show, never, ever going to be the leading change in kind of thought in Publishing general. Publishing has no, indus- no interest in being progressive. Yeah. and None. And the only, the only people who are going to kind of be thought leaders, like even taking away the liberal progressive mm-hmm. kind of, kind yeah. of thing, but just like thought leaders, um, the only, the only part of that machine that is in any way interesting or innovative is the writers. Like the, people... the, the agents and the editors are yeah. literally like the cogs that are holding up this this like exclusionary system. We're and facilitators. It, exactly. Or and and be. like no matter how much work, you know, and I, I think about this all the time, like no matter how much work I do to lift up authors of color or do anything like the fact of the matter is is that like I'm a middle like I'm a middle class white woman yeah. in publishing yeah. you know and and I am you know working in traditional publishing is very like we've talked about this before also it's a very very outdated system mm-hmm. it's you know it's a system that is is really resistant to change it you know makes a lot of bad choices and like the agents and the editors aren't going to be the ones that, you know, completely change everything. You know, all of all of the pushing for we need diverse books and and, you know, hiring people of color in publishing have all been spearheaded by writers. Well, that's the thing. It, it all and it's such a basic point, the one you just made, which is the people who need to be driving the thoughts are the people with the thoughts <laughs> are the people who are doing the writing are the people who are actually like being the voices that the rest of us are supposedly trying to make a living out of getting into the world. And I don't know, like I just think that there's overwhelming evidence that if the goal is to, you know, advance a, you know, and I think that it's fair to say that, you know, both of us are interested in, like you're saying, increasing, you know, diversity in publishing, increasing representation, you know, kind of working toward um, a more, you know, progressive publishing industry, right? Like this to me feels very dangerous because 
Um, I have no reason to believe that publishing is particularly woke. I don't have to think that publishing is particularly interested in advancing any of the causes that it has spent decades not advancing. And so for um, this kind of, you know, this like this subtle little cues, and the only reason we bring it up again is because you see this advice a lot, not just in this one tweet, but you see that idea a lot. Like, oh, you know, you got to be careful. You got to be careful unless, you know, be careful with your opinions Unless you're the person who already got somewhere by having thought out opinions, <laughs> that's what's interesting about it to me. It's like the reason that Roxanne Gay, yeah, the yeah. reason that Roxanne Gay is Roxanne um, Gay, you know, the exception to this person's rule is that Roxanne Gay did a, you know, a good job of not being afraid to share her opinions. She on made things, it, you know. Like and, I personally read Roxanne Gay because I read her articles, I read her tweets, and thought that that was interesting, and then bought her books. Right. And she got there because she was not, you know, she wasn't afraid, you know, she didn't listen to this advice. Like, I don't know. It just, again, it just, it just rankles me because you see a lot of, you see a lot of very, you know, political things happening online in the publishing world that I think are very, very evidently not particularly progressive. And um, I don't know. I just... I don't I don't know what the, my reason would be other than like blatant and like naked careerism to like try to organize my thoughts around not offending those people. I I also am just like as a reader really upset by this advice because politics are integral to writing on all of the levels. Yes. On every single yes. level. Like you cannot make a good work. There's no avoiding it. With without engaging in, you know, the social construct in the, you know, in the political system. Like you can't do it. Like if you're writing about people who don't exist in a vacuum, if you're writing about people in a culture, yeah. if you're sharing your ideas with somebody and, you know, like that is that that's political. You know, those those are opinions. And see you're totally right, and I totally agree. And that's what I think is insidious about this advice is that the advice isn't, oh, be careful with your opinions. It's be careful with opinions that aren't the same as mine because they know, every agent knows what you've just said is true, that there's no actually avoiding the political. Yeah. That there's no actually avoiding, you know, there's no actually separating political thought from actual writing that's worth reading, you know. And so the idea that you would somehow have to be careful about that is um, – I don't know. Like it's the, bad business advice. It's bad everything. Also, I mean, yeah, but but also <laughs> yeah. like, you know, just keeping yeah. keeping like on the, you know, on the reader kind of business thread. Like if I really love a writer and I really love what they have to say, like why wouldn't I want them to say it in all of the ways possible? Well, because right? we also ask them to say it in all the ways possible because <laughs> as soon as, you know, one thing that writers are also getting advice about all the time build a platform. is building a platform on social media and is being, you know, go on there and, you know, be you online, you know, be who you are and express yourself and like try to really engage with people. Oh, but also do it in the exact way that, you know, is as canned and sterilized and as non-dangerous as I could possibly think of. And which doesn't feel genuine, which doesn't help sell any books. Because no, if you're not like, if you're not genuine and, you know, charming on social media or in person or whatever, yeah. um, then it's not gonna work. You know, also yeah. also as a reader, I bulk at the idea that anyone would tell a writer who is the true thought leader, yeah, like that, or that anyone would tell a writer that 
their opinion like their opinions only matter in certain ways. Yeah. You know, like I I don't need to be you know, I don't need work to be sanitized. Like, I don't need a writer who, like, I think that m- all readers are smart enough, like, even, even you know, really young children yeah. are smart enough to understand that books are different than who makes them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and like, that is something that as a human being, we are capable of carrying that knowledge and that, that kind of understanding of that duality yeah. in us. And the yeah. idea that somebody needs to, you know, kind of, protect a reader from those like 140 character opinions <laughs> is well, that, ridiculous. Well, that was what was so funny is someone um, someone replied to that that original tweet and the, the, what they said was, um, you know, if an agent, and I assume this person is a writer of some kind, I don't know who it was, but he basically said, you know, if an agent has so much trouble, you know, grappling with my thoughts over 140 characters. Maybe they should find a more comforting career. <laughs> and like I am, I, I, that guy deserves a medal. I, like I think he's totally right. And um, I don't know. It's just I think it's worth reacting too strongly like this. I think it is worth pushing against that idea. Um, and obviously, this is different. You know, I think maybe a counterpoint that we might get is. Well, that's different than what you would write in your actual book. You know, in your actual book, you can be as opinionated as you want. Um, but like maybe it's about online, you know, decorum or whatever. And there are some points to be made there. Like obviously, you know, in terms of social media presence, if we're going to like give counteracting advice to this, don't um, attack individuals. Right, exactly. There's, there's lots. There's lots of rules to authors being on social media that have to do with ideas, and they're all related to like you're saying, like don't attack, don't harass, don't, don't be a troll, yeah, but like don't be, be a good human. Just being. don't be an asshole, you know, and. But the idea that the opinions themselves, like if you just like put an opinion out there and somehow that – and I guess I mean obviously it depends on the opinion. And um, if anyone knows me, um, you know, I have you know specific opinions about some of this stuff and maybe some of you know where I'm coming from. But um, it's it – seem, it just seems dangerous to me to, um, <laughs> to like just... clamp down on – yeah. I just don't think that there is going to be another good, good book published if everyone is worried about what people who are part of the system want. Like I feel like I should be changing my thoughts and my feelings yeah. according to what writers are telling me yeah. because they're smarter than me, yeah. right? Like yeah. they're they're better than me and, you know, I I spent all week having conversations with other people who are yeah. in this sort of like gatekeepery yeah. sort yeah. of position in publishing saying I want books that I never even thought of that I've never read before all of this that I am not capable of knowing even could exist. Yeah. And the only way to have that happen is to give people the space to have thoughts and express them and to create and I just I I I want to be proven wrong. Well, I can tell you right now, you know, as someone who works in, you know, nonfiction um, and specifically like, you know, upmarket, you know, so maybe even in like the political or historical, you know, side of things, you know, the ramifications of this are clear. Um, most of the books that have been written that are kind of assessing the sociological or political moment right now have all been written um, for the vast majority Um have been written from sort of the same spot on the political spectrum, mm-hmm. sort of the you know centrist liberal, um, you know hashtag resist crowd, <laughs> you know that are basically writing like glorified self help manuals, you know as political praxis, and that's going to keep happening if publishing keeps presenting itself as 
a space where only that is where that's the way for advancement, you know. And so, um, and I think that, that I find that to be very, very worrisome and very problematic. If um, your goal, like I said, is to get ideas into the world that actually might like improve the world or like make people think or um, actually progress um, or I guess advance a progressive you know line of thought. And, Except for the Nazis, they well, don't that, count. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> that, that's 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 yeah. what I mean explicitly by advance a progressive line of thought. Like I mean, I use progressive specifically to mean like you know. Progressive, like far left, you know, like moving, you know, social, you know, ideas in that direction. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that I and, may, you know, obviously, you know, we're probably overreacting to what was just like a throwaway thought from a live tweet. But um, it feels like a prevalent enough strand of thought that I see um, frequently enough in publishing discussions that um, I don't know. It felt it felt worth kind of addressing. Yeah, I and I. There's there's so many ways that this industry keeps people in the dark and keeps people out and and kind of you know it, it's 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 set up to suppress a lot of types of thought, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like not doing it because of some like kind of misguided sense of online decorum <laughs> is yeah. just the worst way. Yeah. Like I feel yeah. like that is going to do more harm to publishing and public and and therefore public thought yeah. than than anything else. It's just like who the hell are we? You know, <laughs> We're no, nobody. seriously, like yeah. we like the whole idea of being an agent is helping someone with better written thoughts than you um, finding a place for those thoughts in the in the world. And also, and anybody can call themselves an agent. You don't have to have a degree. <laughs> you don't have to know anything about yeah, it's publishing. Not like you, it's not like every agent is like a political science. You know what I mean? Like none of these people are trained in any other way than doing exactly what they're doing for a number of years right now. You know, I don't know. It's it's just kind of – I think it's just worth pushing back or at least thinking about. And I think that I do – I will say that I would say um, that a lot of the people who make this point are coming from a good place. Like what they're talking – you know, what they're trying to get across is, um, you know, be engaging and positive in all these things online. And that's that's decent advice for a writer. You know, try to be someone who – um, attracts people, you know, to you know your, you know, to you and to your following, and like, you know, try to build a platform as opposed to attacking and tearing down others, which is terrific advice and one that every writer should follow. But there's like, there's just a little something that creeps in with it that has to do with thought, and it sort of came out here, and I think that um, I think that that's worth identifying um, for the right tip today to wrap things up. Um, it's sort of basically. Just one of like freeing yourself up, and we've talked about this before, but like the preconceived notion of category, right, and like trying to classify what your book is. Um, I would say that this week's tip is to is to write your book as you have it envisioned and figure out what it is after the fact. You know, like, and then you can, and even if you know you come up, oh man, my book is a um, you know YA contemporary, and it my writing simply isn't lining up with those conventions. You can edit for that. You know, yeah. like I think that the point here is that free yourself up to write the book that's in your head and worry about industry and genre um, conventions and categories after the fact because otherwise you're going to be getting away from the creative heart of your story. And I think um, this this is especially prevalent because I had a conversation with a writer at the Writer's Digest conference who had been writing like a YA urban fantasy yeah. for years, right? And he went to a session about writing craft and 
he had an epiphany there where he realized that what he was writing was a mystery. And I think what confuses a lot of people is that subgenres exist, you know, mm-hmm. you, yeah. you um, and subgenres are different than kind of the overarching, overarching genre. Um, but also there are a lot of genres that exist that are also just format conventions. Yeah. So um, mysteries, mysteries and romance are the two like best examples of this. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked on the show before about how romance novels, for example, have very specific beats. You know, you've got specific uh, specific dependence on tropes. You know, you got to make sure that it has a happy ending. You got to make sure that all of this stuff kind of happens where it's supposed to happen. It's the same way when you, you know, you watch an action movie, you kind of know what's coming, right? You yeah. kind of like understand the narrative format of that. And this author and I had a conversation about how, well, his book can still be a YA urban fantasy. But it's just that the beats and the format that he's been struggling against because he was trying to make it yeah. uh, urban fantasy, it's he needs mystery beats yeah. that just has urban fantasy trappings. And so imagine trying to like think through all this before it's written. Yeah, that's It'd be ridiculous. Impossible. So yeah. like, and that's like what you're having right here is an editorial conversation, right? Like it's dealing with work that's already been written, and I think a lot of the time um, writers kind of get stuck as they you know do their um, you know, well-justified homework on all this stuff and they get they become familiar with all the lingo and all the terms. Um, it has a way of clouding your writing, yeah. you know, as you're doing it. And so, like I said, just free yourself from it and worry about all that stuff in the next phase. Because, and if it helps, yeah. um, writers and editors, you know, we're, we're very beholden to kind of trends and the language that we use changes around trends. Yeah. Um, fun fact, urban fantasy is kind of like a bad word right now. And people are still selling urban fantasy and they're still reading it. But what they call it is contemporary fantasy. Right. Terms change. Right. Like, the terms change. And so thinking that you have to stick to a certain thing yeah. isn't like isn't true because we're also making it up as we go along to convince yeah. people that it's new and fresh and that, you know, new readers want it. Yeah. So write first, figure out where it goes in the bookstore later and kind of let the beats and let the tropes and let everything else happen as they happen and don't fight against them. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Print Run. Remember, our query episode and writing by reading is going live this week. First pages are next week. Send us your um, send us your submissions at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Bye.